0: At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on, on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Saviour, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is trustworthy. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. This is the word of the Lord. Tom, nice to see you all. Um, we're working through our way through the book of Titus, and we've called this series From Grace Flows Goodness, From Grace Flows Goodness. Uh, tonight's passage is this kind of this purple passage, this beautiful description of the gospel. And my prayer is, as the word goes out tonight, if you have been a Christian for a while, you'll just be bathing again in how good God is. And if you're here tonight and you're not yet a Christian, uh, your eyes might be opened to just how glorious God is. So I'm going to pray for us. Father, I want to thank you that you're such a kind, loving, gracious, merciful God. I want to thank you, Lord, for your word, which is life-giving and life-transforming. And we pray now for a a, a mighty work of your spirit to illuminate your word, to soften our hearts, to open our eyes, to to bring radical transformation in this place tonight. Uh, Lord, we come expectantly. So speak, Lord, because we are listening. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Uh, Those were the words uttered by this man. He's called Jose Enrique Gonzalez. Uh, He is one of those 33 miners who were trapped underground in Chile about 13 years ago. There was an explosion and the mine collapsed, and, and 33 men were trapped 600 meters underground, utterly hopeless, utterly helpless. They had three days' worth of food. They had some tin sardines, some tin salmon, and some biscuits. Uh, under severe rations, that, that food lasted until day 16, and after day 16, they had no food left. On, on day 17, miraculously, this, this probe had been drilled down from the outside, and it just happened to go to the right part of the cave where they were trapped. And through that, 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 that tube was passed food and water for the next 52 days. 69 days, trapped underground, utterly helpless, utterly hopeless. And on day 69, one by one by one by one, all 33 miners were rescued, were saved. And every single one of those miners got down on their knees and they just sobbed and went, thank you, thank you, thank you. Because that's what you do when you've been saved. That's what you do when your situation has been so helpless and hopeless, you just say, thank you. Now, you might not remember the the Chilean miners, but I'm sure you remember those Thai soccer team that were stuck in that cave. Remember that? The 12 boys stuck in that cave with their soccer coach? utterly helpless, they were trapped, they couldn't swim, the waters rose, and, and they, they're stuck. Uh, their death is certain. Uh, unless somebody cares and loved them enough to come in from the outside. Unless someone would risk their own life to come and rescue them. And that's what those divers did. They, those divers came in with their special equipment. Can you imagine how it felt when those 12 boys first saw that diver's head pop up? There was hope. Just perhaps they might be rescued. And those twelve boys put their lives in the hands of those divers and they one by one by one were brought to safety. And every single one of those twelve boys said the words, thank you, thank you, thank you. Because that's what you do when you've been saved. I don't know whether you've ever been saved, ever been rescued from something. As an eight-year-old, I was rescued from this tidal thing. My siblings swam out and grabbed hold of me. That felt pretty good. As a young boy, I got lost in the supermarket and some kind person found me and rescued me. I said, "Just thank you. But there's a relief, isn't there, when you realise that you were helpless and hopeless and somebody saved you. Now, now this, my friends, is Christianity, Christianity is not a religion, it's a rescue mission. Christianity is not a list of rules, it's about a, a relationship with a rescuer. Christianity is not about being good, it's actually recognising that you were helpless and hopeless and you needed a saviour. And that is, that is Titus chapter 3, it's the most glorious few verses about our, our saviour, our rescuer. I want to focus on three words tonight, just three words. They come twice in this passage. He saved us. He, that is God, saved us. It comes in verse five twice. It's on the screen. He saved us. The, the, the He there is God, our Creator, the one who made us, the one who owns us, the one who is glorious and holy and magnificent. He, God, saved us. The word saved means rescued. He saw us in our helplessness and our hopelessness and our despair. He saw that we were trapped and he gave everything to rescue us. The us there in verse 5 is you, it's me, it's open to all people. This is the core of Christianity. This is about God saving people. That's his business. Pulling us out of the pit Dragging us out of that cave. He does what we cannot do by ourselves. I hope you know Christianity is not about being good. It's about being forgiven. So tonight's talk, tonight's message is actually going to be really bad news. Really bad news for anybody here who thinks that they're pretty good. But it's great news for anybody who realizes that they need to be rescued. Let's start with the word us. Us, our old self. This, this is what we've been saved from. This is our life without God. I don't know whether you ever been to a jeweller's to buy a diamond. But if you've gone to get a diamond, they don't just get a diamond and, and plonk it on a counter. They don't get a diamond, just stick it in your hand. They, they, they get this diamond, they get this black velvet cloth and they put the diamond on the black velvet cloth because against the black velvet, you see how majestic and beautiful this diamond really is. That's what Paul is doing in verse 3. He's showing us what we've been saved from, what, what our situation was. Uh, Francis Schaeffer was asked how he'd spend one hour on a train with a stranger. And he said, I spent about 45 minutes trying to persuade this person, this stranger, how bad he was, and then 15 minutes saying how glorious Jesus is. Now, I'm not going to speak for an hour. I'm not going to talk about how bad you are for 45 minutes. But, but verse 3 is this, this, this black velvet cloth. It's not pleasant. But it's a description of, of us without God, what we were like by nature, the dark the diagnosis of every human heart. He says, verse 3, at one time we too were, were foolish ignorant, without understanding. You might be the, the cleverest person with the highest intellect and the, the, the highest IQ, but without God on your radar, you're a fool. That's what the Bible says. The fool says in their heart, there is no God. So, so when we try to, to do life without God, when we say God doesn't exist, we are, we are spiritually stupid and we are morally foolish. And that is true. People without God, they, they love the darkness. They hate the light. People without God, they, they, they call what is good bad and they call what is bad good. It's all upside down. It's stupid. We were foolish. Verse 3, we were disobedient. We, we didn't listen to God. We didn't like what God said. We're like those little kids who sit their fingers in and saying, I don't want to listen. Not listening. You won't do it. No, 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 no. I've got four boys. I haven't sent any of my boys to the school of disobedience. they just learn it quite naturally. And that is us. We say to God, stuff you, God. I'll decide what I want to do. I don't like what you're telling me, God, and I don't care about you, God. That was us. Foolish, disobedient. What's the next word? Deceived. Led astray by the false promises of this world. I hope you know the, the world promises you so much. You know, find your identity in your stuff. Get, get, get a bigger home, then you'll be happy. Get the perfect body. Get fit, then you'll be happy. Have the, the perfect friendships and the perfect family, then you'll be happy. It's lies. It's deceptive. It's empty promises because family will disappoint you and, and friends let you down and your body gets fat and fragile and, and all the stuff just rots and decays or goes out of fashion. We were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved, says Paul. It's not a nice word. Enslaved, trapped by all kinds of passions and pleasures. It's a bit like drowning. Nobody drowns by holding their, their breath. People drown because instead of taking in air, they take in water. And so we, we were made to take in air. And so if you replace the air that you're supposed to have with anything else, it's not going to be good for you. And the same spiritually, if, if you take in stuff of this world instead of the, the spiritual air, instead of the glory of God, if you fill your lungs and fill your life with stuff that is not of God, it's going to trap you. And this is the, the crazy paradox, because our, our world says this Christianity log is going to trap you. But it's the exact opposite, that the Christianity actually sets you free. It's the world that traps you, because your world is addicted to stuff. It's addicted to passions and pleasures, addicted to money and popularity and possessions and looks and family and friends and food and fitness and fun and success and sex and self. All this stuff that temporarily satisfies you but never really satisfies. Firstly, we used to live in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another that was true of me. If someone offended me, I'd get them back. If you've got what I want, I'm jealous of you. Why, why are you and not me? And, and, and I wouldn't have a, a temper tantrum like a three-year-old. I, I just manipulate and sulk. This is the black velvet. This is what we were like before God. This is every single one of us. At one time, we too were foolish, says Paul. Even the Apostle Paul, the great Paul, the, the great Titus, the great Timothy, the, the nicest person you've ever met deep inside, deep inside each one of us is this switch which says, me, myself and I, and we love to flick it on. There's no one righteous, not even one. And Paul wants us to understand that there wasn't anything good in us that God saw. We did nothing. We were in the pit, we were stuck in the cave this is what you like at your core. God has a thousand, a million reasons not to like us. Have <laughs> you ever thought about that? God's got a thousand reasons why he shouldn't like us. And I know that we like to think that we are mostly good with a few rough spots to sand down, but it's just not true. There's a fascinating book by Oscar Wilde. It's called The Picture of Dorian Gray. I Have you ever read that? It's a great book. It's basically this is the premise that this young man who's having his picture painted, and he has this great idea. Because uh, normally the the picture remains the same and people age, but what if you could reverse that? What if the picture would age over time, but the human being, the man, would just remain the same over time? That'd be nice, wouldn't it? And so they paint this picture. They put this picture in the attic. And the man remains youthful. But every time this man is bitter and angry, the mouth of the painting starts to curl downwards. And every time that this man is jealous or goes into a rage, the, the eyes of the man get narrower and narrower the picture. And every time that the man is proud, the, the picture, the head gets bigger and bigger. And every time this man hates that there's red paint splashed on this picture... And then one day this, 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 this ageless man decides to look at the picture. And he is so repulsed by what he sees, it's disgusting. He hates it. And he realizes that's actually a picture of him, his inner self. That's what he's been like. And that is true of us. Our inner self is not pleasant. And it's liberating this truth because I'm not better than you. And you're not better than me. I'm not nicer than you or kinder than you. I have no right to look down on anybody or feel smug about myself because we're all stuck in the pit. We're all stuck in the cave. We're all helpless. The philosopher Horace said this, a a, a God must not be introduced into the action unless the plot has got into such a tangle that only a God can unravel it. Well, we're in a tangle. And so God steps in to save us. Look at God our Saviour, this is how we're saved. Verse 4 is a beautiful big but, a beautiful big but. But but when the the, the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us. Uh, Please note in verses 4 to 7 that that God is the only person on the stage in these verses. We're in verse 3, God is in verses 4 to 6. What's our part? We do all the sinning and God does all the saving. So please don't think maybe God saw something special about you. Something successful, something intelligent. Oh, maybe I'll save them. I love these verses because it gives you a glimpse into the heart of God and it's so beautiful. I call these verses the the cascading waterfall of God's blessing. The cascading waterfall of God's blessing. And when I use that word, that word waterfall, Please don't think these pathetic Australian waterfalls like a a trickle of water down a mountain. Think Niagara Falls. Think it's this torrent. It's awe-inspiring. It's spectacular. It is overwhelming. This is our God. Verse 4, why did God save us? But when the kindness and the love of God our Saviour appears, why did he say Because of his kindness, because of his love. The word for kindness there is the word goodness. God treating us with undeserved dignity and undeserved blessing. Wow. The word for love in verse 4 is an extraordinary word. It's an unusual word. It's the word philanthropy, the love of humanity. It's his idea of God's gut-wrenching compassion, his pity that he, he longs just to love us and lavish us with his outrageous Unexplicable love that we just don't deserve. Remember the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15 where that, that young boy basically said to his dad, get lost, get lost, dad, can't stand you, dad, don't want you, dad, don't need you, dad, give us your money and I'll go live my own way. And so he took the money and he squandered all the wealth and he lived a wild life. and then one day he, he woke up and thought, what have I been doing I'm going to go back to Dad and say sorry. And so he's rehearsing his lines. Dad, I've been so stupid. Please forgive me. Dad, I've been so stupid. Please forgive me. And the Bible says, when that son was still a long way off, his dad saw him because his dad had been watching and waiting and looking and longing. His dad saw him and ran towards him and hugged him and kissed him and said, "Welcome home." One of my favourite pictures is by this guy called Charlie Mackesy. It's on the screen. This guy, Charlie, won an Oscar this week for the best short animated film. He's a Christian man from HTB in London. Uh, and it's his beautiful sculpture of the prodigal son, except he calls it the, the running father. The running father. This is the story of the prodigal son. It should really be called the running father, who waited every day for his boy to return. The boy who rejected him so badly. And finally, when he saw him a long way off, his father ran to him, hugged him and kissed him. That's the love of a father. Have you grasped that? That your father in heaven loves you with this outrageous, lavish, inexplicable, undeserved love. It's the most precious truth of scripture to me that my father loves me. Let me share this true story from uh, Ruth Graham, who is the, the daughter of Billy Graham. She writes this about the love of her father. After 21 years, my marriage ended in divorce. I was devastated, floundered. The rug was pulled out from under me. My family thought it was a good idea for me to to move away to get a fresh start, and so I decided to live near my older sister and near a good church. The pastor at that church introduced me to a handsome widower. We began to date fast and furiously. My children didn't like him, but I thought, you know, they're almost grown up. They, they didn't know. They couldn't tell me what to do. I knew what was best for my life. Mum called me from Seattle. Dad called me from Tokyo. They said, honey, why don't you slow down? Let's get to know this man and wait a while. But they'd never been a single parent. They'd never been divorced. What did they know? So being stubborn, willful and sinful, I married this man on New Year's Eve. And within 24 hours, I knew I'd made a terrible, terrible mistake. After five weeks of abuse, I fled. I was so afraid of him. But what was I going to do? I wanted to talk to my mum and dad. It was a two-day drive. And questions swirled around. What was I going to say to dad? What was I going to say to mum? I'd been such a failure. What were they going to say to me? We told you not to do it. You've embarrassed us? Let me tell you, and you women will understand this, you don't want to embarrass your father, especially if his name is Billy Graham. As I wound myself up the mountain, I rounded the last bend in my father's driveway. My father was standing there waiting for me. Got out of the car, he wrapped his arms around me, and he said... Welcome home, my precious daughter. There is no shame. There is no blame. There is no condemnation, just unconditional love. And You know, my father was not God, but he showed me what God was like that day. And when we come to God, with all our sin and our brokenness and our failure and our shame and our pain and our hurt, God will say, Welcome home, my precious child. I love you. That's why God saved you. Just because he loves you. Didn't deserve it, didn't earn it. <laughs> he just loves you. As I say, this truth that my father loves me is such precious truth to me. My, my father died 34 years ago. He was an absent father. He was an achievement-driven father. You know, that sort of perform, 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 and I love you. He was an abusive father. And so when I became a Christian and someone says, your Father in heaven loves you, I couldn't grasp that. Because my picture of a father was what is absent, abusive, and achievement-driven. But your Father in heaven just loves you. Not because of what you've done. He just loves you. He's not reluctant. He's not distant. He's not stoic. He just loves you. God is crazy about you. God is so crazy about you, he's willing to show his love very publicly. Verse 4, when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, an epiphany, that's the word, God's love has appeared, made visible, made tangible, made knowable in the person of Jesus Christ. Kindness and love has a a face and his name is Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ, full of compassion, Full of love, full of pity, full of mercy and kindness. And I don't know whether you're here tonight questioning whether God loves you. If you are, you haven't understood who Jesus is, you haven't encountered Jesus. Because in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have this unconditional, outrageous, lavish love. So God saved you because of his kindness and because of his love, God saved you because of his mercy. See that word in verse 5? He saved us, not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. It's such a beautiful word. If grace is getting what we don't deserve, then mercy is not getting what we do deserve. Mercy is not getting the punishment that we do deserve, not getting the penalty that we do deserve, not getting the wrath that we do deserve. That is mercy. It's so beautiful. Remember that mother who approached uh, Napoleon, the Emperor Napoleon, seeking pardon for her son because her son's about to be executed for the wrong that he's done. And she just begs the emperor for pardon. And, And he says, no, no, justice demands that he's punished. And the woman says, I don't ask for justice, I ask for mercy. And Napoleon says, well, he doesn't deserve mercy. He doesn't deserve mercy. And the woman said these famous words, it would not be mercy if he deserved it. And mercy is all I ask for. And Napoleon pardoned that son. It would not be mercy if we deserved it, my friends. We don't deserve mercy. We deserve punishment. God, in his incredible mercy, doesn't give us punishment. He gives us love and forgiveness. And grace, and I love the fact in verse 5 that he adds the negative. He could, have said, he could have said he saved us because of his mercy. But he feels he has to add in this sentence, he saved us not because of righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. And I think God knows our tendency. Our tendency is to think that we have done some good. Our tendency is to think that we must have done something good, No, no, not because of righteous things that we have done. Not because of your good works. Please don't parade your life of good works and good choices and being nice and popular and think somehow that's contributed in any way. It's not about your morality, it's about God's unmerited mercy. And the guy who wrote this letter is called Paul and he spent most of his life trying to be good, trying to accumulate religious righteousness, uh, being of the right tribe, the Hebrew of Hebrew, the right synagogue, born to the right family, keeping the rules, and one day encountered the Lord Jesus Christ on that road to Damascus, and everything changed. He said, all that stuff, it is rubbish compared to knowing God. Maybe that's your story. It's my story. Spent 20 years of my life being good and upright and respectable. But to be honest, I was smug and arrogant and proud. And I encountered Jesus. And he exposed the real me, the bits I didn't like. And I experienced his extraordinary mercy. We don't get what we deserve. It's called mercy. It's so beautiful. And it stops you from bragging. And there's more. He saved you, verse 5, through the the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. This is so beautiful. He saved you. He he made you born again. Rebirth. That's the idea there. Being born again. It's the work of the Holy Spirit, not, not your work. Remember John 3, there was a religious man called Nicodemus who said, what must I do to get eternal life? And, and Jesus says, you must be born again. He didn't understand it. He thought, he thought, how can I go into my mother's womb a second time? And he had understood that Jesus is talking not about a physical rebirth, but a spiritual rebirth. Because if you're a Christian, you've got two birthdays. Your physical birth your date of birth and your spiritual birthday, your date of rebirth. But the important thing here is that it, you can't do it. You didn't decide it was a work of the Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit prodded you and prompted you and chased you and opened your eyes. And that is so liberating because I can't persuade you to become a Christian. I can't preach you into the kingdom. That's the Spirit's work. And the moment you're, you're born again, it says you are been washed. You've been cleansed. He's not talking about baptism there. He's talking about this internal cleansing, a clean heart, a forgiven heart that's pure and acceptable to God. That's what God has done for you. So there's nothing in your life, no hurt, no shame, no guilt, no garbage that can't be washed away by the Holy Spirit through the blood of Jesus. What else, verse 5? The renewal by the Holy Spirit. The word renewal means renew, the new you. So after you're born again, you're the same you, but you're different. I remember soon after I became a Christian about six months later. All my friends were not Christians. And they took me out one night to the Eagle and Child Pub in Oxford. And they sat me down. I remember it vividly. And they said, Paul, you've changed. Paul, you've really changed. And they, they meant that negatively. And I just said, Oh, thank you, really, thank you so much. (laughs) I have changed. I've got a new purpose, a new passion, a new mission in life, a new identity, new aspirations, new desires. I'm a new person because I've met Jesus. Now, that was the work of the Holy Spirit, not my work. I couldn't change myself. You you cannot change yourself, that's the work of God. I, I don't know whether you've ever been to a gym with a personal trainer, but one of the most annoying things is when they sit you down with this weight machine and they try and tell you what to do. And they try and explain, you have to lift the weights this way. And then you give it a go and you can't do it. And so they say, no, no, you have to lift it, lift it this way. And you go, look, I understand with my brain what I need to do, but my muscles just can't do it. I'm incapable of doing it. That's what he's saying here that you're incapable of changing y- yourself. You need this supernatural power called the Holy Spirit to change you. And that's what God does. The waterfall continues in verse 6. We haven't got time for it. But through Jesus Christ, our Saviour, so that having been justified, having been made right with God, it's a legal term, having been declared not guilty by his grace, undeserved forgiveness, because Jesus got punished and you got forgiven. Jesus was forsaken, that you might never be. Jesus was abandoned so that we're accepted. Through his death, Jesus paid it all. Now, this is the gospel. God saved you. His kindness, his love, his mercy, his grace, his spirit, his his son, our saviour, Jesus Christ. What did you do? Nothing. What did God do? Everything. And that is humbling because Deep down, every single one of us wants to do something. We want to contribute in some way. It's like those 33 minors. They, they had to admit that they couldn't help themselves. Have you done that? To recognize that you haven't done anything. And Jesus did it all. Just say thank you. Thank you. And when you do that, you get this incredible new status. we we'll are finish with this, verse 7. We, we might become heirs a beautiful word you might become part of god's family treated like his eldest child with his extraordinary inheritance to look forward to treated with dignity and honor being beneficiaries of everything god has to offer you become this heir. god is a father who loves you cares for you will not abandon you will never forsake you and if you grasp that then you are verse 8 you are careful to do good your good works don't save you, but if you've grasped what God has done for you, then you want to do good works. You desire to do good work, not, not out of duty, but delight. This is the gospel. Now, first, one of my greatest privileges as a pastor is to see people grasp the simple truth. To see people's eyes open, God save me, God save me. I'm about to pray a prayer. We do this four times a year at church. Maybe you're here tonight and you've heard this time and time and time again and you're sitting here tonight going, yeah, heard it, heard it. No, 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 don't need it, don't want it. Can you imagine if those miners down the pit had said, don't need your help, don't want your help? You'd say that's really, really silly, isn't it? Please don't be too proud just to say thank you. Maybe you're here tonight and, and, and you think that you're saved, but you're not really saved. You don't have a real relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You've got lots of good theology, but you haven't really encountered Jesus. There was an archbishop, sorry, an archdeacon sorry, in the UK who was like that. He'd been ordained in the Church of England. He'd been a minister for 30 years. One day he's sitting in church, listening to a sermon, and suddenly he realizes that he doesn't really know Jesus. He's got great theology, but he hasn't actually encountered Jesus Christ and given his life to Christ. Maybe that's you tonight. Or maybe you are a Christian and you've been a Christian for a very long time and you think, yeah, I've heard this all before, Paul, but it's always good to say thank you, isn't it? It's always good to say thank you, thank you, thank you. So I'm going to pray this prayer. It's going to come on the screen. I'm going to read through it and then give you a chance to pray it in your own heart. It goes like this. Dear God, I'm sorry that I have been foolish, disobedient, and deceived. I'm sorry that I have sinned against you. Thank you that you have saved me. Thank you for your kindness, your love, your mercy, and your grace. Thank you that Jesus died on the cross to wash me clean and offer me forgiveness and a new life. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who renews me. Please forgive me. Please come into my life. And please help me to live from this day forward with Jesus as my Saviour and my Lord. If you'd like to join me as I pray this prayer, just to echo it in your own heart. Dear God, I'm sorry that I have been foolish Disobedient and deceived. I'm sorry that I have sinned against you. Thank you that you saved me. Thank you for your kindness, your love, your mercy, your grace. Thank you that Jesus died on the cross to wash me clean and offer me forgiveness and a new life. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who renews me. Please forgive me. Please come into my life. Please help me to live from this day forward with Jesus as my Saviour.